Blog Talk Radio. Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, with co-host Patricia Glover Howard. Hi, Patricia. Hello, Bernice and callers and chatters. With Patricia, you know what? It is always a pleasure to see the callers and the chatters just waiting to hear what's going to be discussed tonight. So, everyone, this show will provide individuals with interested in genealogy and history an opportunity to listen, learn, and take action. Well, tonight's show will focus on discovering ties to slavery with genealogy and DNA. And I am so happy to welcome Nika Smith. You know, Nika Smith has been on this show eight times, and so we're going to fire this place up tonight. You know, (laughs) just understand, the history of slavery in America has made our DNA a complex cultural stew. So in this episode, Nika, as I said before, will combine traditional genealogy and DNA research to trace back to previously unknown but well-documented enslaved ancestors. Nika is a professional photographer. She's a speaker, host, documentarian with several years of experience as a genealogist. She is the host of Black Pro Gen Live, an innovative web-based show focused on people of color, genealogy, and family history. So let me give a warm welcome to Nika Soul Smith. And this is your night time, right, Nika? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so technically it's, it's eight or ninth. Um, I, we were talking earlier. I'm not sure if I, what I want to commemorate um, my eighth or ninth time on the show. I, I was opting for a parking space, but I don't know if that's, to, if that's too soon, maybe I'll get like a plaque or one of those like nice little leather um, <laughs> leather notepad holders. They give you at your job. Okay, so I'm gonna have to send you something. Well, you have greetings from New Orleans, greetings back from Baltimore. So you're getting greetings from your fan club here tonight. Oh well, hey, the New Orleanian. Let me go ahead and give my greetings and salutations, and also my 
my uh, my my uh, condolences on the loss that we experienced last week in the playoff game. Um, unfortunately, oh unfortunately, yeah, I did not watch. I did not watch, um, but I heard about how catastrophic it was because everybody was telling me about it. So I will offer my condolences um, over over a good conversation tonight. All right, so Nika, let's get started. First of all, I mean, I know people probably want to know what motivated you to get involved in genealogy. Well, for me, it was actually pretty easy. Um, I have the cliche story of, you know, oh, I've been a genealogist my entire life. I've always been around it. But in essence, I, I really, that is true for me. Um, as a kid, I grew up going to family reunions, you know, every two years. On my mother's side of the family, you were very close-knit, tight family, um, even, you know, to what are considered distant relatives. Um, there really is no distant relative um, on my Atlas branch of my family. But um, when I was a child, a uh, very small child, in fact, one of my mother's first cousins put together a family tree because one of his older daughters was asking about where the family came from and, and all that. And so he chose to go out and do research. And this is, of course, you know, well before the Internet and, um, you know, having the ability to go online and put a put a name into a search box. You know, this was in the era of microfilm. And so, you know, he, he went to the National Archives. He went and visited the courthouses, um, you know, and, and talked to relatives and, and the elders, got the oral history put all together on a tree. And so one of the first things that I learned how to read was our family tree. Um, and I would roll it out on the kitchen table and I'd question my mom about where all the children were that were my age and um, wanted to know where they lived and, you know, what kind of toys they liked to play with, what their interests were. And so that interest that I had as a child just continued on um, until I got into college and I was at yet one of the other family reunions we had and was wondering, you know, um, especially in that, at that time, um, websites were sort of brand new, the fact that you could actually build something of your own and put it out there. And so I said, you know, why can't we have a family website and why can't we stay in contact when we're not having reunions? And that's why I built atlasfamily.org. It's still there to this day. And um, it became a vehicle where I learned how to do so many things, the things that I wanted to actualize in my professional life. I would learn how to do it so that I could put it on the website. And so I wanted to get to the point where someone who was in my family could literally Google their name and the website would pop up. And that's where we are at this point. Wow. That's wonderful. I mean, to just think that when you were a child, there was a family tree or you had these family gatherings, and you continued this. I, you know, I hope everybody's listening, especially when you have the young people, because we really need to get the young people involved in genealogy exactly. so that they could turn around and do what you're doing, and they're very technology savvy. Uh, Nika, we, we have people that are complimenting you on your outstanding webinar, and so I just thought you should should know that this is coming up in the chat room. Oh, well, so, thank Nika, you. Yes, <laughs> and it was absolutely outstanding. So, Nika, what would you attribute to the overall increased interest in genealogical research and finding enslaved ancestors? I would say probably number one or maybe even potentially 1A and 1B if you're making a list would definitely be the amount of programming that we have on television with regard to genealogy. 
you know, there's finding a roof, there's long-lost family, who do you think you are? I mean, you know, you used to say 10 years ago, even considering a genealogy program, somebody probably would have been like, what? You know, I mean, there was really only one at that point, which was finding your roots, um, you know, or African-American lives. That was the iteration that was there before that. And so I think that uh, genealogy TV in particular um, definitely helps contribute to that because you, you have different cases where it could be somebody who presents as African-American who, you know, the show is taking on a journey of learning their their ancestry and and their connections to enslaved people. And then you also have uh, folks who are European or white presenting who are discovering that they are also tied to enslaved people. Um, And then I would also say that in addition to television, you also have DNA. And the fact that, you know, consumer testing, the price has gone down exponentially compared to what it used to be. A lot of folks who maybe may not have had an interest in genealogy are now, you know, taking DNA tests to get their pretty pie charts and things like that. But one of the residuals of those folks taking tests is the fact that you're confronted live there in person in a very personal personal way with slavery and the aftermath of it that lives in our genomes and the fact that it's not something that you can easily erase. It's not something that, that you can just cast to the side unless you just decide, okay, I'm just only going to look at the pie chart or I'm done with these results. Please remove them from the system. So I think uh, the TV shows, I think the DNA testing, and then also, you know, there's a, there's a, with the political climate that we're in right now and with the historical things that are taking place, such as the removal of Confederate monuments, it's really re-energizing discussions around the Civil War. And, of course, you know, the, the, the huge Lichpin issue that was the Civil War surrounded around, which was slavery, and folks having to confront their family's involvement in that war, whether it was as a veteran, maybe it was somebody who was fighting on the the Union side of the Confederacy, maybe, uh, you know, in the instance of Black Harriet Tubman's descendants where she basically was a spy that ran this huge operation um, where they uh, raided and burned these plantations down. Um, If you have not heard about that story, I highly suggest you listen to uh, an episode of a podcast called Uncivil if you don't know about it please write that down. Don't forget to check that out because it's amazing. Every episode deals with the Civil War and a different aspect of it. But um, I think this just it's been a renewed interest in history and, um, you know, the whole idea of what's considered a fact about that time period and folks really wanted to find out their own personal connections to that. That's probably, wow, you, I think, fine. You just said a whole lot of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> it, it is it's, it's actually wonderful that we do have this this interest. Uh and you have people searching and searching for uh identity, searching for lost relatives and trying to reconnect. And when you talk about D- uh DNA, it is it does offer you that opportunity to connect with your long lost uh relatives. So let's uh, begin with what it means to combine traditional genealogy and DNA to find your enslaved ancestors. Yes, so this is something I think that folks 
there there have been a few people who have dabbled in this, um, but I think at large I would say, with the exception of perhaps maybe me and Melvin Collier, who if anybody follows him, it seems like every two days he's making some new discovery and reuniting 72 branches of one family that were enslaved by 35 different people. It seems like Melvin has that luck that just happens with him. Um, but I think that a vast majority of folks are are in some ways like paralyzed in terms of like being able to use their research skills when it comes to you know the fact that you know slavery is involved um, with some of your DNA matches, but you're not in, entirely sure how to verify that that's the connection, or um, you know you're you're maybe you're scared or intimidated about contacting these folks because there's a difference of race or potential ideologies, and so um, folks have sort of shied away from that, um, especially if it's not an instance where a person knows that they have, especially a person of color knows that they have a um, European or white ancestor um, who was a slaveholder that then had children with their former slaves, or um, there's there's been an established history that's out there that that's there. I think folks have just really clearly stayed, uh, uh, you know, away from it. But I think one of the ways that people in color, people of color in particular, can use DNA research is, you know, especially we've sort of kept DNA in its own like room, right? We're in a house. DNA is like in that front guest bedroom. You know, and some folks are always in that guest bedroom because the computer's in there and their crafting stuff is in there. But a large majority of folks in the genealogy community are in their own bedroom with the ensuite bathroom. They don't go to the guest room. And they consider that DNA guest room completely separate and not operating on the same chasm. When in reality, the bedroom and the guest room are in the same house. And, they are in the um, same house. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, you know, when you're researching slavery, um, and you're researching the slavery era and how your ancestors were involved in that, those timelines go parallel with your genealogy research. Because, you know, I say this all the time, genealogy does not exist without DNA, DNA does not exist without genealogy. And those timelines go, they literally parallel themselves. And um, when, you, when you can get the skills to really dig into records that revolve around slavery and enslaved populations, you can get to the point where you can pull up an inventory and you can look at your DNA matches that, you know, are shared amongst you and other folks um, or, you know, that are triangulated, and you can get back to those ancestors that, you know, for your DNA matches that exist on, on your matches tree that are born before the date that that inventory was created, and you can literally refer back to that list and see their name. That is possible with DNA. And I yes. don't think a lot of folks realize that. So explain what you mean when you say you can pull up an inventory. What are you so, talking about? So and this is totally in reference to, I think, if, if someone is listening to this show and they haven't listened to the webinar that I did last week for uh, Legacy uh, or FamilyTrueWebinars.com, they should definitely refer back to that. Um, in that webinar, I speak a lot about the different resources and record sets that you can utilize to verify an ancestor um, of your family or your, of you who is, was enslaved or if your ancestor enslaved other people or was part of the slavery system in the United States. And in an inventory I'm referring to in particular is talking about an estate inventory or what is considered a, a succession in Louisiana. Each state may have different terminology. And that inventory details the possessions of the deceased person. And during slave the slavery time period, that would include land, it would include a feather bed, it would include farming implements, but also people. 
there will be a separate section sometimes just to enumerate slaves, and then we'll attribute a value to those people. Um, and if someone is really interested in this topic, I will refer them back to a previous episode you had with uh, Dr. Berry where she talks about the values of enslaved people. And so um, at this point, at this juncture, you know, it's with the project that I'm currently working on, if a person shows up as a triangulated DNA match or a DNA match that I have in common with another person and I know which branch of the family that's on and I've done the slavery era research on that family and I know that that's their tie to me, literally 90% of the time if that DNA match has traced back to an enslaved ancestor and I've pinpointed that our match is through that person, I can go back to documents like a slate, like an inventory for a former slaveholder and find the names of that match's ancestors. And a lot of times these folks don't even know who the slaveholder is because they don't know how to do the research to get back to who that person is. Um, and, and as I said, that is possible with the use of DNA, but you have to have the skills to be able to sift through your DNA results and the skills to be able to effectively research the slavery era. Right. So we have a comment coming out of the chat room. Uh, New Orleans Wake Up is saying, but a lot of people get the DNA results and refuse to continue the paper search. True. I think I think that's a valid assessment, but we, we also have to be careful because a lot of the folks listening to the show are coming at DNA from a genealogical perspective, right? These are folks who, who may have been steeped in their research for a number of years and they may have brick walls on certain lines of their family that you're trying to get past through the use of DNA because the paper trail has, has gone cold. And so for us, we're like, yes, you need that tree. Yes, you need those documents. We have to realize that the person who is taking this test that may be one of our DNA matches, they may not care about genealogy. They just want the pretty pie chart. And for mm-hmm. us as genealogists, we have to be okay with the fact that some people don't want to go further than that, that pretty pie chart. Sometimes we also have to realize that these folks may not be able to get back further because they may be estranged from their family. There may be extenuating circumstances where uh, contact has been cut off, um, where they may, you know, it can be a number of different things or a number of different reasons why they just don't come back to it. I've heard where folks were really solidly into genealogy research and then they had the death of a parent. And them going back to that tree was a reminder of the fact that their parent was gone. And they mm-hmm. chose just to completely disassociate for a year or so until they could get themselves together. So, right. you know, as researchers, we have to really be mindful and, and really just, you know, give folks space, you know. And, and sometimes those folks are not going to answer your messages back. Sometimes those folks will never log back into that account. Or perhaps maybe the person died. We don't know. They may not have left the passwords behind to their descendants. But what we do have is we do have to work those lines or those folks that will contact us back or that are eager to maintain those relationships. And the easiest way that I've seen to be able to do that is to remove the conversation from the messaging system on the website and take it to email or take it to the phone. Right. And, you know, there's there's several comments coming out about this this issue that we assume that everyone is a genealogist that has taken that test. But in reality, it may be something very different. And they may not even be be interested in genealogy. Exactly. Also, we we may assume that everybody knows how to construct a tree. Yes. 
Please and my that. eyes opened very wide because I received the message after I was talking to a, a match about a tree set. The person said, how do you construct a tree? Yes. And yes. so I stepped back. I then offered them instructions on how to start a tree, if that exactly. is something they were interested in. So we're, we're dealing with a lot of different things. You know, yeah, and I, I would also add, though, too, especially if if you're sort of, like, not sure about how to approach a potential relationship with the other person, you know what I mean, especially if it's challenging subject matter, like a slave and slaveholder relationship where there's offspring of those two people, you know, or where your ancestor was a slaveholder or whatever, like, and the person doesn't have a tree, to me, that's a great entryway to nurturing a relationship with that person. Is to say, hey, Mm -hmm. I have the skills to be able to help you build your tree out. Would you like for me to help you? Or, you know, do you have an interest in this? If not, let me know that you maybe you just want somebody to help you start it and and you just want to be reported to on on the highlights or whatever. Or if you want to do that, then let's work together. That's a great way to build and establish trust with somebody. Right. Now, there's another comment, you know, and it and it relates to finding a match, getting a match, and this person then looks and they see, oh, this is a person of color. They don't want to have any communication with that match. Mm-hmm. I've had that happen. I've had, I tell the story all the time, uh, my maternal grandmother, grandfather, excuse me, is his, his, what he left in my genome is a bastion of, of a number of generations of people who are considered half black or half white or more predominantly white than black having children together, and thus that's reflected in my genome. So the vast majority of matches that I have from him are white, period, point blank, no question. And, you know, it's the, the patterns are clear. Who the man is is obvious. And I, there we go, put him in my tree, looks just like my great-grandfather, all the stuff there, verify my paper, everything. But I had a DNA match that was connected to my maternal grandfather's family who had a tree. I mean, this was a great tree. Thousands of people on their stores, everything. I mean, the, the prime example of what you want to have the DNA match. But the minute that I added my great-great-grandfather, this person completely chopped off that side of their tree like that was going to make me disappear from their results. And this mm-hmm. person was a blogger with somebody who's in the genealogy community who is white, and the minute they saw my little chocolate face up there giggling, laughing, they completely put a stop sign up and said, oh, no, I'm just not, no, I'm not willing to accept this. And this was not a slavery-era liaison. This was after. So, you know, that's the thing. It's the same thing going back to, you know, us as genealogists and family historians having this expectation that, that everybody is supposed to come out of the womb with the tree already done and the DNA test completed. You know, we can't, we, can't, we can't make other people accept reality. We cannot. As much as it's in our face, as personal as these results are to you as an individual, some folks are just never going to get with it, and we have to be okay with that. And we also have to place our hope in the fact that somebody else who, can, who may come along, who may be related on that same branch of the family, is not going to react the same way. So we can't put the energy out that we expect rejection. We also cannot expect for people not to reject us. That's right. That's right. So let's, uh, before we really get into, you know, finding enslaved ancestors, let's talk about some of the myths that Mm -hmm. individuals should be aware of when they are seeking to identify their enslaved ancestors. 
I would say, you know, and this is something I talked about um, on one of the slides in the webinar last week, you know, the number one thing that I find is making the assumption that uh, someone who is white in the same location, county, parish, wherever, that has the same surname as uh, this, the potentially enslaved family is, you know, the, the white person is that it was the same surname is the slaveholder. Like, that's the same person, you know. Oh, I've I've got a black set of Palmer. That's the name that they had in 1870. Well, here's a white Palmer who's in the same county. Well, that has to be the slaveholder. Well, that that in itself is very short-sighted because that doesn't account for the fact that the Palmer that owned um, those potentially enslaved folks may have passed away before 1870. That um, it may be a different set of Palmers. Somebody this this person, this white person who moved, you know, who lived in the same location could have moved down here from the north or from another area. Um, it also doesn't factor in that enslaved people in particular, I mean, I can just say oh, in my genealogy research in my own family, did my ancestors, you know, take the same surname as their, their last slaveholder? The vast majority did not. They had a they had a surname from two or three slaveholders before that. So um, using that as, as, a, as a guideline, yes, sometimes it works because sometimes it did take place. But I would say, you know, the instances where it does are very small compared to the ones where, you know, uh, where folks did not take the name. Um, I would say another myth or something that people use is, um, you know, whoever the closest white person is that lives by the potentially enslaved people is the slaveholder. They just always are. No, that's not the case either. You know, we're not we're not accounting for people moving. The country was in turmoil after the war. It had to restabilize itself. People left locations. They moved. They they moved around. Um, you know, different disasters and things took place. Where my family lives on the Mississippi Delta, the Mississippi River was was flooding all the time. So you know, in order to make sure that your harvest for that year was not ruined, you picked up and went to an area that would stay dry just in case the river, you know, overflowed. And in that case, you know, you may not have been in the same location um, that you were enslaved in, you know, five years, you know, plus prior. Um, I would also say a third one would be, you know, that the slave schedules is the absolute 110% definitive uh, verification method for a formerly enslaved person, that a blank line with no name is a definitive verification of an enslaved person. That in itself is very short-sighted. And it also doesn't account for the fact that there are so many documents that exist and records that exist that give you the ability to confirm that somebody was a former slave of another person that are not the slave schedules. When you really get steeped into doing slavery era research, the slave schedules are almost an afterthought. It's like, you know, um, that ladybug that passed me before I walked into my back door today. Or it is potentially, um, you know, something you just don't pay attention to that much. It's like, yeah, it's useful, but, I mean, you know, do I use it all the time? No. You know, uh, I, don't, I don't even know. Maybe it's a, a certain type of truffle oil that you bought at Williams-Sonoma that you had for one particular <laughs> meal that you made, you know. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's not Tony Chachery. You know, and we're at my house, that gets broken out every day, right, or Morton Salt, or maybe it's pink Himalayan crystals from Trader Joe's. It gets used every single day. It's not that. It's, it's that, that, that spice that you use that one good time, and you sort of forgot it was in the back of your cabinet. And you pull it out every once in a while, but, yeah, not after the intended first use that it had, you're done with it. So what so you're saying is that the things. slave schedule in and of itself is not the rule. That oh, no. you should you should not 
you have you have a ten year period between eighteen seventy and eighteen sixty, and mm-hmm. so a whole lot of stuff took place in the ten years. But you don't oh. jump from eighteen seventy and then say, "Oh, this is your ancestor on the slave schedule in eighteen sixty." No, and what you're seeing is race. You're seeing age, and you're seeing sex. Yes, you're seeing age, sex, race, whether they're a fugitive of the state. But we're seeing this for blank lines. Like it's not even like you know. At least in my example with the spice, right? You're gonna go in there and look for truffle oil. Well, what if it wasn't labeled? That's literally the exact same thing that you're doing. So you don't know what it is. We're just gonna put it in the pot and assume that it's the right thing. You know, and, and, I mean, no, that's just that's not how it works. You're not accounting for Reconstruction. Reconstruction generated a ton of documents. And, and that, that five-year-plus time period, depending on where your ancestor was, you know, there are a litany of things that you can look at besides, besides the Freedmen's Bureau, which in itself is a huge record set. But, you know, just to jump from 1870 to a slave schedule without actually doing the work of, of looking very intently trying to find all those touchstones that you could find on your, on your ancestors or potentially enslaved people, um, you know, during Reconstruction and, of course, beyond that time period going backwards. You know, that, yeah, we can't be that short-sighted. That, I'm telling you, please put the slave schedules in the back of your spice rack and only bring it out when you need to. Okay. Also, what about this whole issue of names and how those names, those surnames uh, came about in the first place? For for me and my experience in research for clients, helping folks, coaching them, you know, and, and my own personal research, we, we cannot assume that the last name that folks ended up in 1870 is the one that they carry for the rest of their lives because a lot of folks changed after that census, and that's a big hurdle for a lot of folks who are doing research um, trying to trace their families is because they find them in 1880 with a name that they know, but then they can't find them in 1870, and sometimes it's because they changed their name. Um, it could be, uh, gosh, it could be a, it could be a number of different things. Um, but in my experience, it, it assuming that the name that they ended up in 1870, 1880 with was the last slaveholder is is not right. Um, we've got to remember that the disposition of an enslaved child was based off of their mother, right? Virginia law established this, and so I've had times in my own family where a male child took the name of his mother's slaveholder because that was who his slaveholder was, not his first father's slaveholder. Um, so that can complicate things, you know, and, 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 you know, we're not, um, slavery was a matriarchal system, whereas the rest of the world operates in a patriarchal system. You know, slavery was maternalistic. It was based on motherhood versus being based on fatherhood and, and the rest of the world, you know, operates off of patri- you know, sort of patriarchal systems. So it kind of goes converse with what we're used to, you know, in every other aspect of, of research. So, um, you know, that's one of the things. I mean, perhaps maybe I need to put together a presentation so that don't forget about the ladies. Maybe that's, maybe that's what it needs to be called because, you know, if we forget about the ladies, we, you know, we make assumptions that the last slaveholder last was, you know, the person with that name. No, it could have been the mother's owner, not the father's owner. Right. Um, and we also need to remember that those, those women that were part of the, the enslaving families are huge clues sometimes that can break open genealogical brick walls. So for some reason, we just forget about the women. So, yeah, we can't – making assumptions 
um, that it's the last, the absolute last owner. No, no, that's where the pure, you know, genealogy, you know, hardy genealogy research comes into play, and that disproves that a lot of times. It, it certainly does. Well, we're going to take a quick break because I want to come back, and when we come back, we're going to talk about various uh, resources and research strategies to find your enslaved ancestors. So quick break, and we'll be right back. Welcome back to Research at the National Archives and Beyond. This is your host, Bernice Alexander-Bennett, with co-host Patricia Glover-Howard. And you can join us every Thursday at 9 p.m. Eastern Time, where we will have an expert to share resources, stories, and answer your burning genealogy and history questions. Remember, all of our guests, Share a deep passion and knowledge of genealogy and history. All of these shows are available as a podcast immediately after the broadcast, and they can be downloaded from Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, TuneIn.com, and Stitcher.com. Well, you have been listening to Nika Soul Smith discuss discovering ties to slavery with genealogy and DNA. So, Nika, let's uh, go back and talk about some various research strategies that we should explore when searching for enslaved ancestors. So I would say primarily the first thing that folks need to focus on is really documenting potentially enslaved people during Reconstruction you know, that time period is key because folks are establishing themselves as free people, and so they're doing things like registering to vote. They're obtaining bank accounts. They're um, potentially maybe even buying life insurance for the first time, or maybe they're starting organizations or churches, or, you know, um, maybe they're participating in the political process, you know, being selected to be on juries um, in their particular locality. There's a number of different things. Um, maybe, you know, they're the first recipients of, of land, um, being able to purchase land in that area as a free person. You know, doing the research to, um, you know, establish those things, to, to discover those things, it also gives you context for where they lived and who they were involved with. And that can provide you clues as to who the, the last slaveholder was or who a previous slaveholder was. Because sometimes those interactions may be with folks that, you know, that maybe weren't the last slaveholder, maybe it was the one before that or, or something um, along those lines. 
And so I would, I would definitely say um, researching during reconstruction is key. And sometimes that can only take place at the local level, which means that it is not going to jump out of the screen at you after you put, your, put the name in a search box on a website. That means you've got to get off your desk. You've got to go down, you know, to a state archive. You've got to go to a county or parish courthouse. You've got to go to a repository. You've got to go to the National Archives. You've got to go to uh, a college library to look at, uh, you know, papers from an estate or, you know, some sort of magnate family or whatever it is. Um, you know, it means leaving the confines of your home, going through those deed books there on site, you know, or learning how to utilize the systems that we have available to us, like the digitized records that are on Family Search, going through the card catalog to see what is digitized and available for that particular county or parish where your ancestors were from, and documenting them in reconstruction, and then using those clues that you gather during that time period to establish who a slaveholder may or may not be. And here's the thing. You may not hit the home run the first time. You know, um, you, it, may take, it may take time. It may take practice. It may be that you are, are getting these little strings together, you know, so that at the end you're making this amazing, you know, crocheted quilt, but it takes time to gather all that yarn to put it together. Um, and, and so uh, I would say past, re, you know, researching reconstruction, then you get into the phase where you are verifying or denying slaveholdership. Um, I've cased uh, one family for decades, and they were not even the slaveholder of my family. And I did that based off of a name, you know, using mm-hmm. that same trope that we just went over. Um, and in the process, I've discovered 300-plus slaves for this family, and, and I still documented them because I felt like, you know, somebody else might be looking, and this, these may be their ancestors. So I've got to put that information somewhere. I've got to keep it. And so, um, you know, so I eventually ended up placing it online. But um, confirming or denying slaveholdership, you know, primary documents are going to be, you know, as I mentioned earlier, successions um, or probate, you know, that include estate inventories, uh, wills. The thing about wills, I brought this up last week as well, is that don't assume that every slave is mentioned in the will. The slave listed on the will could not be, um, they, they would definitely be on the inventory, but there may be slaves that were left out that were not specifically dedicated to go to a particular person in that particular family. Um, you're also looking at deeds. You know, this is transactions, the sales, of, you know, transactions or agreements between two different parties where they're conveying um, property. And in this case, we're talking about humans, we're talking about people. And so that would be looking at deed records. Um, and a lot of this, as I mentioned, is on the local level. This stuff is not um, digitized, um, unless you're lucky. Um, if you are researching in Mississippi, just go through the card catalog on Family Search. Do not go through search records. Go through search catalog. Go to the uh, uh, county where your family's from and just see if they digitized the microfilm with those deed records. And if they did, please tweet me or let me know because I've been that's that's the that's the deep dive I've currently been on recently. So, well, Nika, um, let me just say something because you're speaking as if everyone understands that if, if everyone has already found their family members in Reconstruction during the Reconstruction era, but what about those people that haven't even documented the contemporary? They haven't even gotten the oral history or gathered documents within their homes so that while they're looking, they may be picking up clues, and so that by the time they get into Reconstruction, they have a very well-documented list of information that will help them continue to go back. 
Well, you're and you're absolutely right, and that's the thing is you can't. That's the mistake a lot of folks make is that they think, okay, well, you know, Mima told me her great grandparents' name, so I should just be able to go to that 1880 census and pull them straight up. Well, yeah, theoretically speaking, you can do that, but as you alluded to, when you do jump back that far and you don't take the necessary steps to, you know, really start your genealogy off on the right foot by searching the home repository, you know, which is searching your home, you know, or going to the homes of relatives, gathering those obituaries, those, you know, uh, vital records, marriage licenses, birth um, and death certificates, you know, uh, yearbooks, whatever it is that you can find that, that provides you context for your family. When you neglect that step, sometimes there are those clues about slavery are hiding within those documents and are hiding within the information that you get for contemporary people. And you just don't realize it until you get back to Reconstruction and you start saying, oh, my gosh, the, you know, the name of this slaveholder was, you know, this, and I found him in 1900 living at, the, at a place with the exact same name. And I couldn't understand what the connection was between those two. But had you, you know, if you, if you had done the, the chronologically, you know, reverse chronological uh, process that we often talk about of tracing from yourself backwards, then those, that's where you would then make those connections. So that definitely is something that can't be overlooked. Um, and, and, but, you know, but the thing is, so many people get intimidated by the quote-unquote brick wall in 1870 and the fact that, you know, slaves weren't, um, you know, included on censuses before them, which technically is false because some slaves were, and there's a whole population of free people of color um, you know, I'm forgetting who I talked to earlier, but, I, you know, we were just talking about the fact that, you know, you have slaves, but you probably do also have free people of color, so we can't assume that everybody was enslaved in our families either. That's, That's why right. reconstruction is, is, is key. Okay, and so we have a question out of the chat room, and it relates to a state. Uh, how do you – excuse me – when, the the screen is jumping for me, and I'm trying to read you this question. When you only know the state that your ancestors are from, how would you go about researching them? So if you only know the state, and so the, the way that I'm seeing this is you've gotten back to 1870, right, or 1880, and you've got a birthplace that is different than where your ancestors are living. So let's just say hypothetically, um, we're dealing with somebody named Horace Tolliver that is born 1780 in Virginia, but in 1870 he is listed in Concordia Parish, Louisiana. And, you know, just doing a simple Google map search or just, you know, referring back to your brain, Virginia and uh, just the state of Virginia and Concordia Parish, Louisiana are not close. The closest state to Concordia Parish, Louisiana is Mississippi. And you've got to pass through Mississippi. You'll pro- if you're driving, you're probably going to go up into Tennessee, go uh, across North Carolina, and then come up at some point into Virginia. That's a long way to travel. And so um, your question then is, how do you get back to Virginia? Well, you've got to take it brick by brick. You don't build a house. You don't throw one brick and say the house is built. You have to have bricks. You have to have cement. You've got to have a, 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 you know, I forget what the, I'm calling it a spatula, but you all know what I'm talking about, that spreads the, spreads the cement, cement yes. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. It spreads the mix, right? You've got, to, you've got to build it brick by brick. No structure is just one solid thing, right? So right. How, did, how did you, or have you researched 
their former slaveholder in the area that they're living in. Do you know that information? If you do know that information, did that family come from Virginia? And if they didn't, have you researched the number of slaveholders or have you researched the descendancy from slaveholders, right? This is separate from, you know, uh, familiar descendancy, right, where this is the father of so-and-so. If you've researched slaveholder descendancy, right, have you traced back an owner's far enough to you where you've gotten to somebody who came to that area from Virginia? That would then be your clue that that person potentially could have brought your ancestor down. Or the other piece is if you live near a major hub of, of slave sales, in this instance we're talking about Horace, Concordia Parish is very close to Natchez, Mississippi. There was a major slave mart there called Forts on the Road. Have we looked in Natchez, which is not Concordia Parish, right? Totally different county, totally different state. Have we looked there for deeds between a former slaveholder that we confirmed at the local level first between them and somebody from Virginia or someone who has ties to Virginia because it could be a slave trader, right? Um, so the other thing that you can do, and this is literally just, this is just, we're shoe shopping. I always say shoe shopping because I like shoes. You're browsing, right? You may not necessarily know what you want. Browse those families, those slaveholding families in the location that your family lived in the 1870s. Look to see if there was a wagon train or a flatboat train or whatever it is that came down the Mississippi River from folks that left Virginia and when the Mississippi Territory and the, you know, Orleans Territory, you know, uh, opened, they settled early, got land grants, and then planted their feet there. And it may not even be a Tolliver family. It may be another family, but they may have intermarried with Tollivers. So there's, it, it, there's no one-size-fits-all for slavery-era research. If there's anything you remember that I say tonight other than the fact that these records from Mississippi are on family search and they're free, remember that there is no one-size-fits-all for slavery-era research. It does not work that way. Each and, each and every situation is unique and separate and different. Some, you know, the vast majority of the techniques that you will use, you will employ them for different branches of different families, but there is no central repository of records that you can just put a name in and it's going to pop out. No. And there is no strategy that works every single time. Each situation is, is, is unique and it's different. That's right. Every situation is different. And we have a comment from Family Tree Girl. She said, follow the water, the mm-hmm. land, the money, and the faith of the people. Yes. And you also need to understand the community. Research yes. the community. I mean, I you know, I do research in South Carolina, and my ancestors are from a slave-owning community in South Carolina mm-hmm. called Edgeville, South Carolina. And so you have to definitely know the resources available in that community and know how to get that information. Yeah, and, and I think, too, something else that, you know, we talked about uh, earlier, I talked about how people – compartmentalized DNA in the traditional genealogy, right, and how they both operate on, on the same chasm, They're literally on the same road. You know, we just, we just, we're, in our minds, we actualize them as separate. Um, when it comes to slavery era research, you're researching the, the enslaving family. You're, so in order to get to the enslaved, you have to research the enslaving family. And that means you've got another every move because their, their property came with them. It moved with them. 
it, it, if they died, it got passed to somebody else. And, yes, we're talking about people, but that's the only way that you can retrace the steps of your ancestors as slaves. You have to know that slaveholding family like you know your own. And, and these families, because they wanted to maintain their wealth and their status, they often intermarried with one another. So that could be, you know, that's the reason why in this, in this group of 250-plus slaves that I'm researching currently, you know, that, that I've traced back to genetically 23 of my DNA matches, right, come from this, these, this enslaved population. They all do not have the same last name. And it's because they came from different sources or from different people, and they ended up in the same locations, and then thus when they got together, then they created all the DNA matches that, we, that I have. So tell us, how did you do that? So a lot of it has to do with, uh, as I mentioned, you know, slavery and genealogy go hand in hand, um, and, 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 and it's the same thing with DNA. They, they both go hand in hand. One of the things that I did early is I created a system for me as I was researching this enslaved population that worked. Use what works for you. You do not have to duplicate something else that somebody else does. In my instance, I work well with spreadsheets, and I knew that I was going to have a lot of different documents that had the names of these folks on there as I traced back further and further and further, when, and I started noticing it was a lot of people. So it wasn't, you know, just 10 slaves. It was 200 plus. So in order for me to get to them quickly, I transcribed their names out and put them into a spreadsheet so then that way I can do a find function, Control-F, you know, uh, uh, open Apple-F on a, on a Mac, and just search for a name and, oh, they're on this list or they're not on that list. To be able to reconcile, okay, I found them in 1840, they're on this particular mortgage, you know, but they fell off in 1843. Well, did they die? Were they sold off? That helps me ask questions. Um, and then the other piece is being able to reconstruct families. And so when you're researching enslaved populations, one of the easiest ways to do that is to look at documents where they, they you know, um, group people. Group the, group the enslaved, right? Just because they're in the same grouping does not necessarily mean that the man and the woman are listed there are the parents, especially if there are no ages included in the document. They could be relations, right? It could be a grandparent. It could be um, a first cousin. It could be just, you know, old, old Miss Winnie is 80 years old, and, and I'm the one that takes care of all the older people, so she's living in my house. There's some, some you know, there's some relation between those folks. But the family groupings are key because they help you reconstruct family structures um, on that particular plantation. So I looked at that, compared those things to potentially the 1870 census. Um, in this case, with this particular population of folks, um, they ended up in three different counties. They ended up in Wilkinson County, Mississippi, Point Coupee Parish, Louisiana, and Concordia Parish, Louisiana. This, these 250 folks ended up in three different counties, and thus their descendants or have ancestry traced to those three places, even though they came from the same slaveholding family. And so um, having those lists, being able to trace them in 1870, look at the family structures, look at the people on the same page as them, being reflected on the inventory, being reflected on the will, being reflected on a deed, and you just keep going back and back and back until their names fall off because they're not born yet or potentially they haven't been purchased. Um, and so at this point, you know, in this group of 20 people that I named, 
me and my two cousins are the only three people that we don't know how we fit in with this particular couple, this matriarch and patriarch that these 23 people descend from. We don't know how we fit in, but I figured out how everybody else does. <laughs> so stay stay tuned because I still don't know where I fit in. But um, I would say spreadsheet, extracting the information in a way that you can use it that makes it more portable for you. Some folks may just prefer to leave those names and those those documents and not extract them out. Me, I want to have it in a fashion that I can search easily and get to the information quickly. So that was that was sort of my tool of choice. Yes, yes. So, Nika, uh, how much of your slave research has been online versus on the ground? Mm, I would say probably 60-40 or 70-30. 70-30 meaning... Um, at the larger preponderance of it at the local level on site. Um, I would say probably about 30% of it would be online. And I think the reason why that's higher than it probably would have been five five to six years ago is because stuff is being digitized and made available online now. Um, mm-hmm. I think when, when Ancestry, you know, uh, put the uh, wills and probates on for a number of different states, in particular states that had um, slavery, that has helped a lot of folks because you're getting that will, you're getting the inventory, the account papers, you know, uh, the executors, um, letters of administration, stuff like that. You're getting that stuff available online as well as, you know, as I mentioned, family search, digitizing those records. Um, With this particular group that I was just referencing, the majority, I I haven't even been to the county yet because the majority of those D-books that I'm looking at are already digitized and available on family search for free. So at this point, before I even hit the state archives to look at the papers of the family, I had already had 19 different pieces of of documents or or evidence on this enslaved population, and I haven't been to the county courthouse yet. That's all been done online. Yes. So what would you consider your greatest strategy or method that has helped you in your uh, research? I would say um, I would say just just not giving up. Honestly, I mean that that sounds so intangible, but really it's true. Um, for me, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I spent ten years researching the exact same family until I just said, you know what, the leaf's not here. Maybe it'll show up, and and it was a totally different family. Um, and I think. With doing this particular type of research, you have to be dogged. You have to be almost cutthroat. You have to, you know, you have to really, really want it. Um, you know, slavery era research will haze you. It really will. It will grow you up as a researcher because it, there are no cop outs with this. There is no, oh, they just they they index the database and I'm done. No, that no, 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 no. That is really true. Tried and true research with within the slavery era it is going to prove you as a researcher and you have to be steadfast and you can't you cannot give up and throw on the towel. There are times where you're just gonna say, I'm done, I'm tired of looking, I've looked at this, whatever, you know, for forever and then when you come back to it you realize that somebody's put a database out and your record's right there that you've been looking for. So, um I would say that's probably the one asset um or the thing that, that has helped me in terms of like actual physical tools. Um, I would say having a genealogy database um, that is sourced, that has documents that you can go back to, 
that you transcribe those things out so you don't have to keep pulling that file folder out or maybe you digitize them and attach them to your tree. Um, I would say that probably has helped as well because it helps you um, on the enslaving family side or the enslaved family side to be able to track relationships easily. So I would say, I would probably say that, um, probably those two things in my opinion. And when we talk about DNA, give us an idea of what relationship you have discovered with the slave-owning descendant. Has it been fifth cousin, fourth cousin, or more distant? Oh, gosh. For me, um, third, third or fourth. Um, and, And, you know, when we talk about this, you have to remember, like, each person's family is different. You know, um, I'm knocking on 40, but my great-great-grandparents were that that was my enslaved generation in my family. So, you know, that is more than, than, than readable, so to speak, in, in, uh, in terms of my genome or my genetic information. Um, and so some of those great-great-grandparents were not enslaved because they were white. Um, and, uh, you know, it's... It, Usually that's the thing because of a of intermarriage or what we refer to as endogamy. Some of those relationships that go beyond that are are actually exaggerated. Um, mm-hmm. You know where it's more like a fifth or sixth cousin and it's showing up as a fourth. Um, you know or potentially closer. Um, you know but but in in my situation um, in terms of my own personal research and and slaveholding families, um, you know I've got DNA matches that share a hundred centimorgans with me that are white. Um, and, you know, uh, or 150. That's one for my mom, same family. Um, and and it's just at that point where it's like you can't cut your tree off because this is undeniable. This is not 10 centimorgans. This is not five. This is not seven. This is 100. And because, you know, African Americans in particular, our European percentages range from anywhere from five to 70, 80, right, Um that's the type of stuff you're going to see. And, you know, as I said earlier, we can't always assume, too, that, that these interracial relationships or liaisons or, you know, whatever we want to label it, that they occurred during slavery. For me, two of them in particular came after. So uh, that's just something that we have to consider. Right. But then that's talking about a, a different situation because at one one point you're talking about in, an enslaved uh, person Mm-hmm. And being the child of uh, a, a slaver, <laughs> a planter, mm-hmm. or what have you, and then you're mm-hmm. talking about something that happened after slavery. Afterwards, yes. yes. So we have a comment, and this is from Lucy, and she's saying she was fortunate. Not only did she trace back to the sla- she traced back to a slave register, but there were articles in the newspaper where her ancestors told the story of where they came from. She mm-hmm. even has their photos, and she, you know, feels that she needs to go back, you know, just to go back to learn even more. But that's one of the things I think you and I even spoke of when we talked the other day, and that sometimes people may need to just stop and read some of those slave narratives. Yeah, communities where their ancestors lived, because they may get clues as to what was going on in that community. Absolutely, I, and that and that's the thing. I think that's that's what sort of discourages people from using the slave narratives as the source. 
because they didn't find their, quote-unquote, their family in there. Well, you have to remember, these enslaved communities, you know, these plantations were, were they were like little towns, you know what I mean? And so for you to say, oh, you know what, um, Katie Dunbar was in there, but, you know, Horace Tolliver wasn't, so I'm, you know, I don't need to, I don't, I, that, that slave narrative is useless. No. What was Miss Katie talking about? Was she detailing how the slaveholder operated, you know, the fact that he allowed them to go to church or, you know, that, that he was benevolent or maybe he was awful, maybe he made them work around the clock, you know? Um, you know, I've read slave narratives where, where folks outlined that um, an enslaver built a, a – had the slaves build this uh, gigantic fire so that they could work 24 hours and have life. You know, and whereas my family wasn't even enslaved on that particular plantation, but they lived nearby, how, yes. what, what type of interaction did that slaveholder have with the slaveholder of my family? Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, that's what the slave narratives do, is they provide color. So to, to dismiss them because your particular folks were not listed in them, or in this instance, like, um, like Ms. Lucy just brought up, right, she talks about her ancestors giving an account of them, you know, enslaved. You know, the, the other folks whose families were enslaved on that same plantation, they can glean something from the accounts of her ancestors, even though those may not be directly their ancestors themselves. That's right. Also, I mean, she mentioned the newspaper, but so many people may be surprised at what's put in the newspapers. Uh, mm-hmm. I found a, a, a obituary in 1914 of Jack Alexander, who was born in 1810, and it says, you know, Uncle Jack died. He was a slave, and he was his former owner, and it gave the name. And mm-hmm. so we have to, you know, there there are a lot of different places where we need to search. So let's talk about the Civil War pension files. Oh, yes. Love, love, love. I love the veterans. The veterans, I'm telling you, they are the gift that keeps on giving. If you haven't located um, a pension file for a direct ancestor, look for cousins, look for, you know, associated people. Um, because your ancestor may have served as a witness in their file or, you know, that particular person, especially if they were enslaved in the same community as your ancestor, they may, there may be uh, uh, an account from the slaveholding family. Um, there may be, um, you know, is a, I mean, you, just don't, you just don't know what you're going to find in a civil war pension file. You know, it, it makes me giddy just thinking about, like, oh, my gosh, there might be a pension file. We don't know what's in there. We can't wait, you know, to get it. So um, civil war pension files are gold because, you know, you had to establish that a person was really who they were. And so when um, they would apply for a pension, they, of course, had to have a medical reason as to why um, they were applying for one. But in the course of them doing so, you know, um, if they provided discharge papers, great, okay, they have that. But if they did not have those things, they had to have witnesses come in and vouch for the fact that they were, in fact, the soldier they were claiming that they were. And so this means that character witnesses would come in. They would say, yes, I've known you know, uh, whoever for as long, you know, for this number of years, I when they went into the service, or perhaps maybe the pensioner died and their widow was trying to get their pension and they didn't necessarily have a formal marriage certificate. Maybe they did, they were married, they, you know, proceeded to act like they were married folks, but they didn't have that paper. And so they would have witnesses come in and say, I was there when they got married. Here's the person that married them. They lived as man and wife. She has not remarried. I knew them because we were enslaved by the same person. I mean, you just don't know what you'll find um, in there. So those pension files are, are gold. 
Well, we have some examples coming in, and uh, Susan Blakely said that her great-grandfather, Isaac Blakey, Blaker, was in the Civil War from 1863 to 1866, and she has a copy of his um, Civil War pension file. And that file is, is just a gold mine of information and lists names of uh, the children and who the enslaver was. So it's it it as you said, this is one fantastic document that people should definitely consider, even if it's not your ancestor. Get the mm-hmm. file anyway if it's in your community because your ancestor may have served as a witness for this yeah. person. Uh, Shannon is saying that one slave narrative project participant testified that an overseer named Tom Bridger sired over 160 children with enslaved women. He later learned that one of those children married into his family and and served as an executor of Tom Bridger's estate. Wow. 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 I believe it, honey. That, let me tell you, those, the slave narratives and pension files are, I mean, they're just, you just don't know what you're going to find in their gold. And this, you think you got to think about it. This was the first time in some instances these folks were getting to share their experience in the past. Not I am a slave of so-and-so. No, I was a slave of, I, you want my opinion or my account of what happened in my life. Because now, before the law, I am a person, a full person. So if they have the opportunity to tell it, then we're going to tell it. But we also have to remind ourselves, too, that that these pension examiners are coming down. And, you know, they were from a different area, different place, you know. So they may have been intimidating. It's the same thing with the folks with the slave narratives. We don't know the type of questions that, that they may have asked or if, you know, who they were in the community or if they may have been biased, you know, all we know is what was written up. You know, you have to kind of look at things from um, from a historical lens, you know, consider the context, the environment, what was going on at the time, why certain words may have been used and others not, um, you know, that those are things that we also have to consider when we're looking at these things. Yeah, right. And I just want to go back to something Susan has said. She said she was given a copy of the newspaper of the slave ad of her slave ancestors in 1858 that listed the slaves. Mhm. Mhm. Well, I mean, that that I would say um, she said it was in a newspaper, right? That yes. documented the names of the slaves. Yeah, especially like in the case of like a state sale, or let's say somebody had had a a mortgage they took out and they defaulted on the mortgage, and one of the terms of the mortgage was that if they defaulted on it then the slaves and whatever else they use as collateral will be sold and will be held at public auction or will be given to whoever that person is, that's oftentimes where you see those names listed out like that. And if she hasn't already, you know, um, try to see if you can find the descendants of those folks. That's right. So what else would you recommend that people do when they are trying to in, you know, looking at traditional genealogy, but you also have this DNA coming up here. So mm-hmm. what else would you recommend? And now you were lucky because you're saying, you know, fourth cousins, but what about those people that are seeing uh, European matches much further back? They haven't gotten their research back that far. How can they 
put the two together and say perhaps this is the uh, descendant of the slave owner? Well, I think one of the things that comes into play with that is knowing how to utilize the DNA systems that you have available to you. Um, you know, there there are limitations to, you know, every system that's available when it comes to, you know, the companies that are offering um, DNA tests out there. And so if you're not familiar with how to utilize those systems, the reason why I keep bringing that up is you want to confirm with the branch of your family the relation is on first before you start making jumps and inferences that this is the right person. Um, so, you know, sometimes that requires testing the appropriate people to verify that particular relationship or to disprove it. Um, meaning that if you have a parent available to test, you know, or um, maybe an aunt or uncle to stand proxy for a deceased parent or a parent that's not available, um, you know, being able to test grandparents or, or other cousins or things like that to be able to, like I said, approve or, or prove or disprove um, where the relation to that DNA match comes from with regard to your family. So that definitely is the first step um, in addition to learning how to use the system to be able to decipher um, that information. And then um, I would say at that point, once you have confirmed which branch of your family is on, um, you know, reaching out to your match or, you know, analyzing the information that's on their family tree to see if there are correlations. Um, for instance, um, there's a DNA match that we have that uh, is really only about 10 or 11 centimorgans, and they don't have any ancestry tied to this region of my family that I have, you know, uh, verified that that's the side of my family they come from. Their folks are from North Carolina. My people that come to this match are from Mississippi and Louisiana. And so at that point, I looked at their tree and I said, okay, well, they've been in Northampton, North Carolina forever, right? Their entire family is, is from, you know, that side. Well, let me see if they have a, a you know, a parent tested. All right, they, they're working on getting the parent tested. Okay, great. Let me look to see if that surname is repeated in any of the areas my family are at or were in in Louisiana, Mississippi as slaves. Yes, there are. Oh, wow, look, here's a whole history of these folks that came from North Carolina and were enslaving folks there and moved to Tennessee and then moved to Mississippi and were there pre-statehood. All right, there's our smoking gun. At this point, what we need to do is bring the two pieces of research, my research that only goes back to reconstruction, you know, potentially, and theirs that goes beyond reconstruction, and we've got to trace those steps of that potential slaveholding family from the point at which they left North Carolina and went to Tennessee and then moved to Mississippi. And mm -hmm. in, in tracing those steps, that could be deed records, that could be property taxes, probate or estate that would list the names of the formerly enslaved people. The other thing we have to remember, too, is that sometimes this information, we, not, maybe, we may not be able to find it right now, but it just may take that one database or that one set of records being released um, you know, or that one clerk finding that book in that uh, courthouse that would will break the case wide open. That's right. Now, one of the things, and I, I, I'm getting questions on my, uh, <laughs> I'm getting actually being text with some questions that they're not texting on, uh, putting on the chat. But one of the questions is, well, okay, how do I find my ancestor? Uh, how do I find a slave at, let's say, in Jones County, Georgia? Okay. Well, here's um, it's for a slave ad, right? A you slave, say, how do uh, I find? 
how do you find a slave ad in Jones County, Georgia? Right. We're talking advertisement. That would be in a newspaper or a publication. So to answer that question specifically, looking for an ad, you can look in the archives of a newspaper or publication that could exist with the paper if they're still in existence or would be on a website such as newspapers.com, Genealogy Bank, Newspaper Archive, Chronicling America. Um, you know, some of those are fee-based. Chronicling America, Chronicling America is free. It's offered by the Library of Congress. Cross your fingers that it's on there, you know, so potentially you don't have to buy a membership, but you may have to. Um, that's where you would find ads. There are also websites now that exist. Um, I, I'm facing on the name of the university that has, like, that repository of, like, 5,000 uh, slave, slave ads. Um, uh, I can't think of the name of it, but there's a huge repository where they're, like, trying to catalog slave ads. Um, that's, that's, a, that's another possible resource. But here's the other thing. Don't just point your question at Jones County, Georgia slave ads. What else is in Jones County, Georgia? Well, Jones County, that means that there are deed records, there are state records, probate records, there are mortgages, there are liens, there are anything that is specific to how the court structure or the clerk structure or the, whatever the government structure is set up in that particular area. Get, you know, learn that so that you learn where property was documented because that means that's where the people were. That's right. And, you know, I'm seeing uh, uh, there is the uh, University of North Carolina, Greensboro. They host that Digital Library of American Slavery. And, yes, yes. And, you know, it's really good when you can go in there and and just start looking around because they have very good information. And there are other databases. So one of the things that you want to do is familiarize yourself with all the various databases around that yeah. can help you. Yeah, and, well, they're, and they're currently building mm -hmm. other ones too. So be absolutely. on the lookout for that. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, Nika, we're getting close to the end of the show. And I want to know if you have any parting words or any additional information you feel people should know before we close out tonight. Well, I would say um, first and foremost, you know, this this type of research can be overwhelming. Um, the only type, the only time I've seen folks react in the same way uh, that they do to slavery or research is when they're first getting introduced to DNA. It has this reaction like it's overwhelming. I'm never going to figure it out. I'm done. Like I'm not going to touch it. Uh, but if you're really meant to do it, you're going you're going to keep trying, and you're going to strike out sometimes, and you're going to you're going to hit it out of the park other times. Um, and so I would just want to encourage everybody to you know to be open and to try different things. And you know sometimes things end up positively, sometimes they end up negatively. But the story is in the journey and. The longer, you know, and the more we accept that, um, you know, so that means, you know, passing on learnings as you go or, you know, maybe you decide to post on a message board, hey, you know, I tried to look at these records, but they're mislabeled or, you know, maybe you go in and make a correction or send an email to tell, to tell folks, oh, you know, at what a particular website, this is not right. Or, you know, maybe it's illuminating things when you get down to that, that county court office because you have to remember, a lot of folks that are going into those places are looking at contemporary records. They're not looking at the stuff we're looking at. And some of the staff may not even be aware that there are records that, that document slavery there. 
Um, and so I would say, you know, keep an open mind. Um, also be prepared for the journey. You know, share what you're learning along with that. And, and also just don't forget to be curious. And the reason why I say that is, you know, today I came across an estate inventory in, in Massachusetts. And this is a northern state. There was slavery that was practiced there, um, you know, up until, you know, late 1700s and then, you know, then it ended. Um, but I was looking at the state inventory of someone who, uh, of course, died in Massachusetts, had a small estate. But on the next page, there was a notation of a $140,000 debt that existed between the deceased and another person. That other person owed, they owed the deceased $140,000. And if someone was researching this particular person, they would, you know, unless they were curious, they maintained that curiosity, they might just write off, oh, it was just a debt, right? But because I had done the research into that other person who owned that money, I know that that $140,000 was used to run a plantation in Mississippi and that the equivalent of $3 million today was loaned out in 18, by 1836 by this mm-hmm. man in the north to his brother to run a plantation that used to be his but he sold off to his brother to get out of the business. So I say all that to say, stay curious, research every dot, period, I, mark, hash mark, whatever it is, <laughs> and, and at some point you're, you'll, end up, you'll end up with some answers and potentially even more questions, but, but you'll have more than what you started off with. And, and we're saying follow the money. Mm-hmm. Google is your friend. <laughs> yes. It's, it's it's coming up, and also participate in Maggie. Yes, where please you will go, have Maggie. an opportunity to meet Nika Smith, and Nika is in the DNA track, and so we want everyone to to register again, yes, so you could hear and learn more about uh, this research. And so, Nika, I want to just thank you so much for sharing your knowledge and enthusiasm for genealogy with us. And remember, everyone, your ancestors left footprints. And the clues that you want to follow, they're presented to you. They're presented to you in all kinds of ways, family records, DNA, and research at the National Archives and beyond. You can continue this discussion on the research at the National Archives and Beyond Facebook page. And also remember to listen to the African Roots podcast with Angela Walton Raji on Friday. And also watch for the Black Progen Live with Nika Soul Smith. Thank you so much for joining research at the National Archives and beyond. I look forward to you joining us next week. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and co-host, Patricia Howard Gubler. Good night, everyone, and good night, Nika. By the way, I messed it up. It's Patricia Glover Howard. (laughs) Oh, good night, everyone. (laughs) (laughs) Good night.